You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. There are people today that are, that are working in a cash register at a grocery store that worked during the pandemic, and, and you know they might never know this, but we're honoring them today here at the Department of Labor. Essential workers of the pandemic were inducted into the Labor Hall of Honor on Thursday. Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh talked with Your Rights at Work about honoring these workers and about the 71% union approval rating, the highest in nearly 50 years, reported in a Gallup poll this week. When Hormel took over the plant, the morale was low. Morale right now is so high because there's a brother-sisterhood here. We're together. We're solid. We know we're going to struggle. We're out there in the heat, but we ain't going anywhere. From the BCTGM Voices Project podcast, Bakery Workers Local 85, and the corn nut strike in California. In order to provide um, the quality of care that so many of us want to provide, we have to do it on our lunch time, we have to do it on our own time, and Kaiser is just not allowing that. And in another California strike, therapists walked out on Kaiser Permanente over a month ago. Building Bridges Radio talks to two of the strikers. On Tuesday, Starbucks announced that the first store in Kansas City to organize would be closed permanently. In the first of two reports on Starbucks organizing, the Heartland Labor Forum reports on Starbucks shutting down the only store in Kansas City to vote in a union. After I was fired, I walked over and I was saying my goodbyes and I thought, this is it, I'm going to walk out of the store. And right away they knew that it wasn't appropriate that I was separated and they were angry and they were upset and they walked out. That's our second Starbucks report this week from the El Cafecito del Dia podcast, which brings us No Contract, No Coffee, a conversation with Starbucks workers and union organizers Sam Amato and Christian Miranda. We had kids coming to drivers with letters of support, pictures, just, you know, having their parents speak up. The idea of losing their driver caused a lot of insecurity for the kids. From the Solidarity Works podcast, The Battle of Bay City, bus drivers fight back privatization. Can Justine please explain what on earth the term quiet quitting is all about and what her thoughts on it are? From what I can tell, it's just people (laughs) doing their jobs? Question mark. On Red Dead Redemption, Justine chats about the epidemic of quiet quitting. We all know somebody who probably could have benefited from medical cannabis. So for us, it was in part a moral duty to to stand up for this program. The New York State cannabis industry is creating tens of thousands of union jobs. America's Workforce Radio finds out how. Within 15 minutes of me submitting my resume to another company, I get a call that says, hey, I'm in Houston, would you like to do an interview? And I thought that was normal, so I'm like, sure. So I went and did an interview, and within an hour of submitting a resume, I'm hired. And uh, again, I thought that was normal. From the Powerline podcast, the history of Milwaukee Tool, and the things Milwaukee has done to put itself on top of the tooling industry. But the store had an arrangement where instead of a paid break, we would get a small soft drink or water, which we would be required to leave in the crew room and access when we get a chance. 
after, of course, confirming with the managers that we're allowed to step out and have a drink. Our last segment comes to us from On The Job and is titled, Give Us A Break, Maccas. That's what they call McDonald's in Australia, where the podcast originates. A quarter of a million current and former McDonald's, sorry, Maccas, workers in Australia are suing the fast food giant for $250 million over alleged denial of paid breaks. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. And if you like what you'll hear, please take a moment to subscribe and share the show. Sonic Solidarity Works. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. have the right to call into this show. Welcome to Your Rights at Work. Chris Garlock here with Ed Smith, 202-588-0893. If you've got questions about your rights on the job, the rights you have, the rights you don't have, the rights you wish you had. Next up, I had a chat this morning with Labor Secretary Marty Walsh. We'll see you guys on the other side. Stay tuned. At the age of 21, Marty Walsh joined Laborers Union Local 223, a construction workers union that represents over 20,000 men and women in the Northeast. He went on to serve as the union's president, then headed up the Boston Building Trades Council. He also served in the Massachusetts State Legislature before becoming the mayor of Boston. March 2021, he became the 29th U.S. Secretary of Labor. I spoke to him earlier this morning from his office at the Department of Labor. Hi, Chris. Hey, Brother Walsh. How you doing? Hey, my friend. How's, how's everything going? Happy Labor Day weekend. Happy Labor Day to you. Appreciate your time this morning. I know you've got a little bit of a shindig in a few minutes. So let me just jump right into it if you're ready to go. Yeah. Great. All right. So welcome to your rights at work, Secretary Walsh. Uh, today, you're going to be inducting the essential workers of the coronavirus pandemic into the U.S. Department of Labor Hall of Honor. They'll be joining labor heroes like Cesar Chavez, Mother Jones, and oh. A. Philip Randolph, and I saw there's an aspiring list on the DOL's website of dozens of workers across the country who were nominated by grateful friends, employers, and community members, and that includes some local folks like D.C. community food service workers, Taiwana C., who's a D.C. custodian, uh, Andrea B., a D.C. educator, and Cynthia M., who's a sales associate in Maryland. So I was wondering if you could share with us some of the folks whose stories especially inspired you. You know, I, I think when you think about what happened uh, in in March of 2020, uh, you know, every essential employee uh, inspired me. You had you had grocery store workers going to work every day that that, you know, we didn't have masks. We didn't have PPE. We really didn't know what the coronavirus was. We knew a little bit about it. We knew it was contagious. We knew that, you know, at that point, if you remember, people didn't want to shake hands and then it was elbow bumping and all that stuff. 
you know, you had nurses that went into hospitals that didn't have N95s, didn't have gowns, you had doctors, you had, you, had, um, you know, custodial staff going in there, cleaning the rooms after somebody left. Uh, in the beginning days of this pandemic, it was really, it was, it was scary and, and frightening and dangerous. And, 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 you know, obviously a million people lost their lives. So it was very, very concerning. Um, fast forward two years later, um, you know, a lot of us, I think, when I say us, people forgot that, you know, where we were two years ago, not that long ago. Uh, but I haven't forgotten that. And, and today, you know, we're highlighting certain individuals, but we're, all, we're highlighting those individuals represent millions and millions of people. Um, so, you know, it's, it's great to see at the Hall of Fame here, uh, the Wall of Fame, I should say, here in Department of Labor. I mean, I've, I've gone by the wall several times and, and looked at the names and see the interesting individuals that are on there and the amazing accomplishments that they've given to labor. Uh, but today is different. Today is about a group of people. Um, that 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 have names and faces, uh, but there there's so many of them that we could we could cover every single inch of the Department of Labor's building uh, if we put their names and picture up here. Uh, and that's something that I think that will go down is great names on that wall, but probably today one of the most impactful set of names and people that will ever go on the wall. And I know you know you come out of the the construction trades, of course. And you know I remember talking uh, to to some of the guys. Uh, you know, working on, on on job sites, you know, around the D.C. area during the pandemic. And, and to be honest, it was a bit of an education for me. You you would have known all about it. Uh, but just what they were going through during that time you were talking about, you know, trying to figure it out in a, in a construction site. How do you deal with the pandemic? And I was wondering if you had any insight into that, just, for, just from your own personal background. Yeah, you know, in Boston, when I did, I was the mayor of Boston at the time, and I shut construction down uh, for, for, for several weeks because, Everyone was getting shut down except for construction. And, and you know, people like, oh, we got to build. And, and I was thinking we didn't have the proper protections, uh, you know, social distancing, physical distancing on the job site. They didn't have the proper PPE. So we shut down the construction sites for about six weeks. And then when we reopened it, I would probably say that they were the first industry that really in Boston that got reopened in the country that reopened and we're able to have all the proper protections there and some great protections for folks. And, you know, construction workers in the very beginning of the pandemic, much like grocery store workers where, you know, people didn't think about, well, I'll say this, not everyone thought about their safety and they were as prone to, uh, you know, catching the virus as anybody, uh, if not more because they were on job sites. So, um, you know, it, it was, you know, the, the, in some, a lot of cases, they were essential workers as well, construction workers. Uh, you know, I think public safety, first responders, our, our fire, our EMS, our police, uh, all of those went to work every day. Uh, a lot of cities and towns across America, the public works crew went to work every day. The cleaning the, emptying the barrels and cleaning the streets. The, the, the transportation folks went to work every day because uh, they had to, and they continue to go to work every day. So, you know, I think that, you know, Again, honoring all those folks that, that did that, was it's, it's really important to do that. Yeah, it's so interesting because when you look at that uh, Hall of Fame, uh, Hall of Honor, uh, you know, those are names that are recognizable. People know them. They're people who are in the public eye. And I think what you're doing here by recognize sort of the unsung heroes is just so important, right? No, there's no question about it. And, and I think that that's why I think it makes it so well. I mean, there, there are some unsung heroes on, on the wall downstairs as well. Uh, but but this is this is different. This is... Uh, this is millions and millions of Americans. I mean, if, if you know, there are people today that are, that are working in a cash register at a grocery store that worked during the pandemic. And, and, you know, they might never know this, but we're honoring them today here at the Department of Labor. Uh, 
Now, Gallup released a poll earlier this week shows that unions have a 71% approval rate, the highest uh, since 1965. What do you think this means for the American labor movement in 2022? I, th- I think it means a, a lot of a lot of opportunity uh, and promise as we move forward, not, not just for the labor movement, but for workers, uh, workers that, that have the ability to join a union uh, or organize a union gives them collective power. And I think that, you know, the, the I think this is an opportunity to seize this moment uh, for resurgence in the labor movement. You know, I've been in the labor movement for almost 35 years myself personally. Uh, and, you know, my time in the labor movement, I've seen declines in organized labor. Uh, and this is the first time that we're seeing actually increases in organized labor. And, you know, I think that there's a unique opportunity at this moment in time uh, to, to, to see a resurgence. And, you know, the labor movement is, is, a, is a pathway for most into the middle class. And right now, more than any other time, well, in the last 50 years, our middle class is being eroded and we have an opportunity for to, to bring back that middle class and organized labor should be and can be a very big part of that. And building off of that, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, Labor Day is coming up this weekend. Uh, do you have a particular message uh, for working Americans on, on Labor Day 2022? I just want to thank all the workers for the amazing work they've done in 2022. Uh, we're still, you know, we're still, we're not beyond the pandemic. We're still living in this, this space of a pandemic. And I just want to wish everyone a happy, happy Labor Day. And I'd ask you all as you have cookouts or go to the beach or whatever you might do, uh, let, let's think back. Let, let's not forget the essential worker. Uh, it's been two years since the beginning of the pandemic. And every day, uh, the essential worker seems to be a little bit buried in the back of people's heads. And just realize that essential worker that's working today or working on Labor Day while people are enjoying cookouts, there's somebody at a grocery store ring, ringing up the register, stocking the shelves. Uh, and, and they continue to, to, to work on our behalf or a nurse or a teacher or, or whomever, we, we, whoever, whoever's out there working, just thank them for their, their amazing work. All right. I got one last question before we go. And I, I hate to put you on the spot like this, but uh, I, I, was, I noticed that the 2000 inductee to the Labor Hall of Honor uh, was a fellow by the name of, of uh, Ronald Reagan. Now, I know that Brother Reagan served as president of the Screen Actors Guild, uh, but as you well know, uh, the labor movement, he's he's better known as a guy who busted PATCO. He launched the modern era of, of, uh, of union busting. And I guess I was thinking that with all these Confederate statues coming down around the country these days, maybe it's time to, to think about whether whether Brother Reagan really belongs in the Labor Hall of Honor. Just 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 wondering. <laughs> yeah, that, that's I, I certainly I certainly wasn't the secretary of labor the day he was in. The no, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, again, I, I think that, you know, I'm not sure exactly what the what the I know. I know certainly when I when I first saw the, the Wall of Honor, I went down and I saw uh, President Reagan's name on there. I, I looked at it and kind of, you know, obviously raised my eyebrows as well. But uh, I'm not sure what the circumstances were as he came in there. So I think that I think that you know, when you look at his name, it's inspiration just to go out there and organize. That's the way I was going to take it too. Good. Thank you so much for your time today. Happy Labor Day, Mr. Secretary. Thank you very much for having me. Happy Labor Day, everyone. So proud to stand together for work and family the heart and soul that's made this a better place to be
Thanks so much for listening to Your Rights at Work with Chris and Ed. Everybody have a safe and happy Labor Day weekend. We will see you all next week. Take care, everybody. This is a public service announcement with guitar. Welcome to the BCTGM Voices Project, a podcast highlighting the real people who make up our union, the bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and grain millers. I'm Michelle Ellis, Director of Digital Media. This is the BCTGM Voices Project. On August 16th, approximately 40 members of BCTGM Local 85 went on strike against Hormel Foods at the corporation's Fresno, California Corn Nuts facility. Hormel purchased corn nuts from Kraft Heinz in June of 2021 and have unilaterally imposed changes in the members' health insurance plan twice since then without negotiating with Local 85 or even informing the workers at all. These changes have caused massive increases in costs for BCTGM members, put many of them into medical debt, and laid the grounds for the unfair labor practice strike and charges Local 85 has filed against Hormel Foods with the National Labor Relations Board. Here is their story. So my name is Jerry Gill. I work for Local 85 Bakers Union in Sacramento, California. My name is Larry Cuevas. I am a shop steward with a local, and I am the lead processing cook for uh, Cornets. And I've been with the company for about uh, better than 32 years now. So, guys, I know that this company was owned by Kraft Heinz up until last year, right? That's correct. So, Larry, since you work there, I'll have you answer this question. What it was like to work there before? Uh, maybe compared to now? When we were craft ties, it, it was a good work atmosphere. The morale was up. Uh, we were a happy crowd, okay? It was just business as usual. But uh, since Hormel took over, the uh, it has not been as business as usual. Uh, the morale has been low. It's just not a fun place to be at day after day right now. And as I understand, they came in there and just made changes without having a union meeting or, or anything, right? That is correct, Michelle. What happened is when they acquired the Cornets plant, they sent the representatives down to the plant, and it was pretty much a scare tactic from, from the get-go. What they did was they came to offer us employment, and that would really confuse the heck out of us and scared a lot of us because we were already employed. But they just came right out and said, we're here to offer you employment. And uh, if you accept employment, then you accept all the terms as, as far as their, their benefits and hourly wages and stuff. So it was uh, an intimidation tactic, building a tactic, just right off, the, right off the start. So what happened here is not, we're not talking about an expired contract and an impasse. This is an unfair labor practice strike, correct? Yes, it is. Okay, now, I'm curious what the attitude is. Is everybody really solid out there? Is it stressful? Michelle, I've talked about in the past when Hormel took over the plant that the morale was low. Morale right now is so high 
because there's a brother sisterhood here. We're together, we're solid. We know we're gonna struggle, we're out there in the heat, but we ain't going anywhere. We're, we're dug in, to put it blunt. We have a link on our website, bctgm.org, uh, that is called Three Ways for You to Support the Corn Nut Strike. The easiest way to get to that is uh, by typing into your browser bit.ly forward slash corn nut strike. Awesome. Okay, guys, this was really good information. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks, guys. Bye bye. If you found this content valuable, please consider sharing it on your own social media pages and be sure to tag us. We are BCTGM on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more on the activities of the BCTGM, go to bctgm.org. Greetings. I'm Mimi Rosenberg. And I'm Ken Nash. And we're building bridges. Yes, we are. Up later, more than 2,000 behavioral health care workers are sick and tired of being sick and tired, of tired of their miserable working conditions and the way their patients are being treated. So what do they do when they're under attack? Why, they fight back. Fight back and strike back, and we'll head straight to the picket line with the more than 2,000 Kaiser employee strikers. Well, they're fed up with being overworked and underpaid, and after a year of fruitless negotiations, have taken to the strike line to say enough is enough is enough. Joining us straight from the sizzling summer picket line is Natalie Rogers. Thank you for having me. I work in the emergency room at Kaiser in Santa Rosa, California. Um, how patient care has really impacted the emergency room is patients are not able to receive uh, care um, outpatient. So they are coming to, to the emergency room for things such as uh, regular therapy appointments, or um, they are decompensating at a faster rate because they are not able to receive care, um, which is not something that we want um, for our patients to wait five weeks or more um, just to see their clinician. We've also been joined by Ken Rogers, who is one of the lead organizers and uh, strike leaders, along with uh, Natalie. What the heck is Kaiser Permanente up to? Thank you. We have we have exhausted uh, the limits of the possible in negotiations with this employer. Uh, our main concerns are patient access to care and working conditions of our employees. We don't have enough time to provide the care that we need to provide to provide ethical and responsible um, mental health care for provide for patients. And that care is more than just face-to-face. It is also responding by email, filling out forms, doing paperwork, following ethical and legal standards. It is not busy work. It is necessary for patient care for, our, for the people that we work with. And we've been dealing with this really for the past you know, 12 years, longer, but 
it's been a long ride to this point. In order to provide um, the quality of care that so many of us want to provide, we have to do it on our lunch time. We have to do it on our own time. Um, and, and Kaiser is just not allowing that. And we've been doing that for a long time because we, you know, a lot of us, um, we got into this because we really care, right? So, for instance, I, I got into this field because my sister um, killed herself. So that was something that is very near and dear to me, um, that mm. people have somewhere to turn. What's that favorite chant, Natalie? What is it about? Patient care. One, two, three. What is it about? Patient care. What is it about? Patient care. Well, Ken Rogers, uh, Natalie Rogers, uh, strikers against Kaiser Permanente and for real patient care and for the rights and benefits of workers. Thank you so much for joining us. Love talking to you. We'll visit you again and see how you're doing on that picket line. Hey, folks, send them some stuff. Make sure they get enough to drink. I'm Mimi Rosenberg. Thank you. Thank you. The Rogers. And I want to thank you for listening and um, stay strong, stay well, and support ourselves. That is, support the working class and support our striking Kaiser Permanente workers. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This is the news from our side, August 25th, 2022. Union busting at Starbucks appears to be going from bad to worse. On Tuesday, Starbucks announced that the first store in Kansas City to organize would be closed permanently. That's the one in the Country Club Plaza. On Wednesday, many of the workers from that store, who were already in limbo waiting for a decision from the National Labor Relations Board about their union election, which Starbucks had challenged, held a picket in front of the now-closed store. We interviewed Addie Wright. Hi, Addie. And uh, you work at this store? Or you did? I did work at this store for three years as a shift supervisor. Are you one of the members of the union? I was a part of our organizing committee. Our store doesn't have a formalized union yet because we had a tied vote awaiting challenge ballots. So I wasn't a member of a formed union yet, but I was trying to be one. That case is with the NLRB right now, right? The challenge ballots? Yes, and they haven't given us a date of when uh, they will give us the results of the challenge ballots. Okay, and I assume you're going to file charges about the store closing, is that right? Oh, definitely. It's, it's obvious retaliation. Um, and, and if anything else, we're at least going to make some noise. So do you know of any other stores Starbucks has closed uh, after the people started unionizing? I know there's been plenty. I did receive a text yesterday from some partners in Seattle, Washington, that their store was closed on the same day and the same time as us for the same reasons, which I find awfully suspicious that another unionizing store was closed at the exact same time for the exact same reasons. That seemed like a planned, planned attack to close our stores um, to me. Okay. Well, good luck. Thanks. Thank you. You have been listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss. And you can talk back to us, too. 
Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to Heartland Labor Forum KKFI at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM, KKFI. We still get our because we are the working class and that's Bienvenidos. Welcome to El Cafecito del Día. Brought to you by the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement, our conversations are inspired by the moments of togetherness that Nuestra Comunidad shares over un cafecito. Hola, my name is Maria Hernandez, and today we'll be sharing this cafecito with Manny Hartman, president of LACLA's South Florida chapter. Together, we will interview two Starbucks Workers United organizers. We will speak with Cristian Miranda, a young Latino organizer based in Miami Springs, Florida. His work led to the second Starbucks union win in his area. We will also be speaking with Sam Amato, a lead organizer based in Buffalo, New York, whose firing led to a union walkout and viral video that has racked up 21 million views. So tell us a little bit about yourself and about your co-workers. My name is Christian Miranda. I'm 19 years old. I'm a student at FIU studying journalism. That's a description that can be applied to a lot of the people at my store. We're all very young, mostly college students. We're all Miami Springs residents, so we have a very close connection to the people in our community, not just through our store, but through growing up there. We're a very close group. So I am 33, about to be 34, Virgo season. I've been working for Starbucks for 13 years. I think last week would have been my 13th anniversary. Always loved working there. I have a very diverse group of coworkers from age 17 up to 70. They're really some outstanding people, some of my best friends in the world. We have a really cool team. So what is life like? A lot of people have preconceived notions of what it's like to be an employee at Starbucks. Tell us a little bit about that and also what got you to start this unionizing, organizing effort? There's a lot of uncertainty with things like our schedule, our hours. The dynamic between us as employees and management isn't a very healthy or fair one. We're always begging for our work conditions to be better. After we started organizing, that, that dynamic definitely changed. They walk more on, on eggshells lately, and it's been harder to, to mess with us. One thing that, that definitely propelled me to take those first steps into organizing at my store was just seeing how stressed out and overworked everyone was. Like You could see it on their faces every day. We all care about each other very much as co-workers, and we see each other every day almost. And just seeing everybody struggling just to get through even a short four-hour, five-hour shift it didn't feel right to me it didn't feel right for me I felt like I deserved better and I felt like my co-workers deserved better too so we went ahead there was a lot of support among my co-workers I really was outspoken about a tumor that I had on my parotid gland under my ear and I had it for years and I just I couldn't get it removed because it was always going to be too expensive and I was just really scared 
that I, the bills would be insane. And the bills are insane. I finally had to get it removed this past October. I'm still getting bills and it's thousands of dollars. And I'm like, I, I work really hard all the time. I'm paying hundreds of dollars each month for insurance. Starbucks is making a, an incredible amount of money. We have these managers and, and corporate members that come to our store talking about wearing Gucci scarves in their vacation homes. And I can't afford to get a tumor removed. Slowly, th little things started to add up. And I'm like, we deserve better. And Starbucks language, their values, their missions, everything that I see in Starbucks encourages us to come together and advocate for ourselves. They call us partners. So let us actually be a partner. Slowly as my store progressed towards voting, they increased the staff to water down our vote. And then after we voted, our staff went from about 50 people to the week before I was fired, we had 17 people. And that was just kind of to make things difficult and push us out. We were short staffed. Our hours were cut. My store manager was saying, you guys asked to be unionized, so this is what you get. If you want more people on the floor, you shouldn't have unionized. That's not appropriate. It's not even legal. Starbucks has shut down or threatened to close stores. They've been threatening our benefits. And August 1st, they gave everyone a raise except for unionized employees. They said that all partners would be able to get healthcare costs covered if they have to travel out of state for abortions or gender affirming care. But they said, oh, if you're unionized, you can't get that. Did you have an ah moment where you just said, okay, this is where we're at. We got to now really get down and we need to do this. There's no turning back. It's always an emotional moment for me to think about. So I was blindsided by my firing. I always would joke that I had a target on my back. I've been so involved with the union. I was a leader at my store. I was shocked when it happened and my partners were very shocked because I think they can all attest that work to Starbucks standards and I uphold everything they want to see in an employee. After I was fired, I walked over and I was saying my goodbyes and I thought, this is it. I'm going to walk out of the store and that right away they knew that it wasn't appropriate that I was separated and they were angry and they were upset and they walked out. Thank God my union representative that I called in to sit with me for the separation conversation was the union's lawyer. He was there to answer any of their questions about the walkout to make sure they had legal rights to do so. And they did. They all walked out and joined me and it was really beautiful. And I'm really so touched by their actions. And we've been on strike ever since. And actually after this, I'm going to our picket line. This has been Manny Hartman, president of the South Florida LACLA chapter. Sam, Christian and Manny. The time you spent with us helped to sweeten lo que a veces seems like a bitter cup of coffee. And as we all know, once you wake up and smell a cafecito, you just can't go back to sleep. On behalf of LACLA, thank you for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge. Hasta la próxima. Welcome to Solidarity Works, a podcast from the United Steelworkers Union. We're here to have conversations and start conversations about the past, present, and future of the labor movement, as well as talk about some of the work the union is doing with USW activists leading the way. I'm Chelsea Engel, proud member of the United Steelworkers, and welcome again to Solidarity Works. Right now, students across the United States are returning to school as summer simmers down. 
and fall signals the season of Friday night football games, and foggy mornings waiting for the bus to arrive. Not everyone loves this time of year, of course, but Jennifer Ehrman sure does. She worked for a long time in the medical field, until an injury left her looking for a career change. She found bus driving and gave it a chance, and she hasn't looked back. Now she's proud to serve as vice president of the local 7380 unit of 25 bus drivers, mechanics, and dispatchers for Bay City Public Schools in Michigan. I love it. My best part is the kids, being the first one to see them and start their day off right, building that relationship with them, and it's just fun. This past April, Jennifer and her coworkers went on spring break like they do every year. But this time, they returned to find their world turned upside down. During this period, the Bay City School Board had decided that they would be holding a vote in early May to privatize the bus driver's jobs and break their union contract, which wasn't up until August of 2023. The local was blindsided and had little time to act. Um, well, we did have a union meeting and, um, you know, we kind of brought the team together. We, as a team, put signs together to go walk when we we're on our off hours. Along with creating a petition and organizing informational pickets, the local also had the support of the students and their parents, who were both in an uproar over the school board's decision. Oh, my. Our kids were devastated, heartbroken. We had kids coming to drivers with letters of support, pictures, just, you know, having their parents speak up, them wanting to speak up themselves. And they just, the idea of losing their driver caused a lot of insecurity for the kids. There's good reason why the kids were thrown by the school board's betrayal. Bus drivers aren't just transport workers. They serve as chauffeurs, yes, but they also unofficially, but just as importantly, serve as counselors, confidants, nurses, and guardian angels to students of all ages and abilities. Jennifer and her fellow members expertly navigate a 35-foot, 14-ton bus over serpentine roads and through treacherous storms. With these conditions and expectations, it's imperative for students and their parents to feel safe in the arms and hands of those at the wheel. We all have relationships with our parents as well. You know, we take the time to interact. It makes our job easier first and foremost, but it also eases mom and dad's stress when they're putting a kindergartner on. Or, you know, the kid, if they feel comfortable, safe, and secure, then it, it just makes it a better environment for the children. Fighting back to keep their jobs, the other connection that turned out to be vital in this fight was joining with other unions in the state and bridging the gaps that can too often separate the labor movement into silos. 
just with the union knowledge that we had, we started reaching out to not only the USW, but other unions in our area, the UAW, the AFL, Teamsters, the electricians unit. I mean, they they came out and, you know, if they ever need us, we'll be there for them. It's, it's all about letting this town know we need to keep our unions. All the support the drivers fostered paid off. The vote went through and the board stood behind its drivers for the most part and kept us on, kept our contract in place. The drivers were thrilled, and so were their supporters. For a minute, they were able to breathe. Then, the school board threw them another curveball. They immediately brought in a new director of transportation. Jennifer and her coworkers are stepping up their game out in the community because they believe this move by the board signals that they don't plan to stop pushing for privatization. But now that the local is armed with the lessons learned from their first victory, they're now using that wisdom to be proactive. Until next time, take care and stay safe, siblings. No masters, only helpful advice. It's Red Dead Redemption with Auckland Union representative Justine Sachs. Morena Justine, how are you today? Morena Rachel, I'm good, and you? Good, thank you. Uh, We have got many a question from the listeners, but one that someone's texted in, which I am also very excited to hear your answer to, because I've seen it all over the internet. Uh, Could Justine please explain what on earth the term quiet quitting is all about and what her thoughts on it are? From what I can tell, it's just people (laughs) doing their jobs? Question mark. Yeah, let's start for folks who haven't seen it. What what is quiet quitting? It's all over the bloody internet need at the moment but what's going on here <laughs> yeah yeah totally it's like a meme i think people are um have had a guts full of um, of their jobs which is totally fair and so we're coming up with new terms for things that already exist so i think quiet quitting as i understand it is literally just not doing extra hours unpaid right um and just doing your job um so not doing overtime and things like that um in terms of my thoughts on it like i'm glad that people are thinking about you know, all that unpaid labor that loads of people do do um, as part of their job and, you know, like they're going the extra mile because it is actually like you are being, that's wage theft. Mm. Um, so I'm kind of glad that people are kind of becoming more aware of it. You really shouldn't be doing more than your job. You are paid to do something. Do not go over that. Um, I guess I find it kind of funny in a way because we have a term for that in the union movement and it's actually like, you know, if you're going to do a partial strike, we call it work to rule. Um, and it means like you literally, yes, it, it is as it says, quiet, it's quiet, quiet quitting. Quitting. <laughs> but, it, but it's like, it, it sometimes can be a partial strike. So yep. 
say you're like a healthcare worker, um, a work to rule strike, or I guess quiet quitting, um, would be that you just, no one does overtime. Like no one says yes to doing any overtime. Right. And so that's a good way to put pressure on an employer to, you know, give a raise to the people or things like that. So quiet quitting, um, not, not a huge fan of it, to be honest. Um, yes, I think rule. the stuff I've seen is a lot of um, sort of articles being like, millennials are quiet quitting. <laughs> Who do they think they are? <laughs> yeah, so that feels like a new, you know, it feels like a new like millenn- Zoomers and millennials are, yeah, yeah. are ruining <laughs> unpaid labour. Um, anyways, so yeah, look, don't, you don't need to quiet quit. Um, let's move, actually, like, let's just like park that. Let's not call it that. Do your job and don't do anything over that because you're not getting paid for it and that's wage theft. Um, and the cooler term is, is work to rule. I cool. think. Yes, the hearty union term, work to rule. Yeah, we like hearty that. Union rule. Well, that's answered it for me. I hope it's answered it for the texter as well. Thank you very much, Justine, and thanks to those of you who've sent those questions in. Have a great rest of your day, Justine. We'll see you soon. See you too. Bye. Yeah, take that, the man. Red Dead Redemption with Auckland Union Representative Justine Sachs. Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Welcome to the Friday, August 26th edition of America's Workforce. We're going to start things off with Nikki Kateman. Nikki is the political and communications director for Local 338 of the Food and Commercial Workers Union, which represents about 13,000 men and women working in a variety of industries throughout New York State and northern New Jersey. Nikki Capeman, welcome to America's Workforce. How are we doing today? My union sister, what's going on? Thank you so much for having me. I am really excited to be here and chat with you. Let's let's get into uh, cannabis organizing. I was reading some numbers. I guess it's one of the fastest growing industries right now, and we're seeing laws change almost overnight in various states. And from what I was reading earlier, that your local 338 was part of the coalition that passed or helped pass the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act. Now, was that in the state of uh, New York? Because I know your territory covers New York and New Jersey. Maybe you can explain the territory and uh, what you did to get that passed. Because there's a lot of people that, "Eh, I don't know if we want to go down that road. A bunch of pot smokers. Eh, No, no, it's going to cause all kind of crime and all that. I'm sure that was kind of an interesting campaign. Let, let, let's get into that. So um, let's just pick it up from there. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. So I, if you don't mind, I'll step back a little bit because we um, actually got involved in cannabis policy and the cannabis space in New York uh, about a decade ago, actually. Um, and it's, our work really started when New York passed the Compassionate Care Act, which created a medical cannabis program in New York. Um, and we were part of the coalition that worked really hard in partnership with drug policy reform groups, patient advocates, veterans groups. It was a really dynamic group of people um, who may not have necessarily all come together to work on it and on a policy. 
Um, but, you know, the issue of medical cannabis and, frankly, adult use cannabis are both moral issues, right? We all know somebody who probably could have benefited from medical cannabis. So for us, it was in part a moral duty to, to stand up for this program. But also, you know, you, I, I used to joke that New York has a once, had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity of creating new industries. But New York seems to be doing a lot of that with, uh, frankly, green jobs, both in terms of cannabis, but climate jobs. Um, but, you know, when we're talking about cannabis, we wanted to make sure that if New York was creating a new industry, we were doing so in a way that created really good union jobs. So uh, worked really hard to get the Compassionate Care Act passed, which included um, labor peace agreement provisions. Um, and so by the time New York looked to create the you know, pass the, Medis, the MRTA, which is the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, um, we were already a voice at the table and recognized stakeholders with a number of different um, community activists, um, different community groups, and we had already organized workers in this space. So um, we were in a really interesting position. Um, the MRTA and cannabis legis uh, legalization legislation across the state is really centered in the righting the wrongs of past drug enforcement policies. And these programs are centered in equity and opportunity and creating pathways to um, creating generational wealth. And so we were there to say, we want to see diversity and ownership. We want to see opportunity and ownership. But this industry is going to create 30 to 60,000 jobs in New York. And we should be talking about how we're making sure those jobs are also pathways to generational wealth through union Union, pathways to unionization and union opportunities. And we're already seeing the difference it's making in medical cannabis. So let's make sure the workers who are going to be in the emerging uh, adult use cannabis market are also able to do that. And so um, worked really closely with legislators, the same group of drug policy reform groups, community-based organizations, uh, industry players to create a program that really has opportunities for everyone to succeed. Um, you know, the, there's opportunities for new tax revenue. There's opportunities for all different types of community-based programs that are going to be funded through the tax revenue. But also, most importantly, we're going to be creating a really dynamic industry that's, you know, going to have really great jobs um, that are going to create opportunities for people that have been, you know, really excluded from good jobs in the past. Um, and I would say the one other very exciting thing about the cannabis industry is, you know, um, you know, I think people are their views of cannabis are changing. Right. Um, you know, if you if you go to a dispensary, chances are uh, you're going to see probably folks you wouldn't expect to see um, mm -hmm. it's folks who are, you know, over 40. Right. It's a different it's a different group of people who are starting to use cannabis and enter this market as customers. Uh, but what's most exciting about cannabis is the opportunities down the line because we haven't seen, um, been able to do research and development. So there's a whole future in this industry that's not been explored yet. So really the job opportunities are. You know, it's interesting when you throw taxation in there, that's, that's where the, uh, everybody's eyes light up because <laughs> there was a lot of naysayers on this and they said, well, wait a minute. Now, if we can throw a tax on this, now you got my attention and uh, I'm sure that pushed it over the finish line. Nikki, great job. Thank you. I'm gonna let you get back Thank to work. I, I know you're busy, busy lady. Keep doing what you're doing, and please keep in touch, okay? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on, and I look forward to for the next time I can join you.
What's up and welcome to Powerline Podcast. My name is Ryan Lucas. I'm the founder and host of the show. All right, if you go back to the first few episodes I recorded of Powerline Podcast back in March, April, May of 2019, um, you'll hear me talking a lot about Milwaukee Tool. And we were noticing it back then. We were really noticing it in the industry. And if you're a lineman, you, you know it. We use their tools. We love their tools. We noticed that Milwaukee was doing something different. They were doing something special and that they were, it seemed like they were listening to the user, to the end user, to us, the linemen. And they were starting to innovate and develop tools that seemed like they were specifically for us. Well, I finally fast forward three years, finally get to sit down with a couple of a couple of beauties from Milwaukee Tool. Mike and Steve uh, had the, the privilege and honor to go to the grand opening of their brand new hand tool manufacturing facility um, and then sat down after with Mike and Steve and recorded this podcast. And it's Guys, it's not just about tools. Um, sure, there's a lot of tools in there, but we go over the history of Milwaukee. We talk about leadership. We talk about culture. And we really just had a lot of fun recording this. So we're just going to jump right into it. Let's go with the next episode of Powerline Podcast. Mike, what brought you to Milwaukee? How did you find Milwaukee Tool? We'll go, we'll go right, you. That's a great story. Actually. Oh, I have a, uh, <laughs> oh man. Um, I'll try to be short on this one as well. Um, it, like I told you earlier, like family means a lot, right? So growing up with, with my dad and, you know, he, he was, uh, um, he owned his own business. So, um, when he would come home, he's the hardest working person I know to this day, but he comes home, takes his suit off and puts his work pants on and goes out and does projects, whatever. Right. So I learned to uh, rewire houses, lay brick, lay tile, plumbing, I've, you know, jack of all, master of none, right? So I had a passion um, in uh, industrial arts or wood shop or metal shop. I uh, just love this crafting, you know, building stuff and reflecting on it, right? Uh, so I just remember that, hey, I want to work in the power tool industry. I used to do... Um, <laughs> Uh, my dad and I would go to woodworking shows or go to whatever type of uh, industry uh, industry events, right? And I was like, man, I want to be in power tools. And um, didn't think anything of it. Came out of college, uh, graduated in 02 from Stephen F. Austin State University. Uh, went into uh, insurance and finance and quickly realized that was not for me. <laughs> Um, uh, this was not my cup of tea. So drummer from Houston, Texas, yeah, he was all over the place, right? Um, all over the place. Dreaming of power tools. Well, okay, carry on. No, but you know, I, I find like, how are you supposed to have a college kid? Like, I'm two weeks out of school, and I'm telling you to invest money with me. Like, that just didn't make sense, right? Right. Yeah. So you know, I had to this do some stuff. Um, so I put I went on the Home Depot's website and just listed like all the power tool manufacturers, right? And within um, like 15 minutes of me submitting my resume to another company, I get a call says, hey, I'm in Houston. Would you like to do an interview? And I thought that was normal. So I'm like, sure. So I went and did an interview. And within an hour of submitting a resume, I'm hired. <laughs> and uh, again, I thought that was normal. It's a little different now. 
It was way different now. <laughs> uh, they've been out. I probably wouldn't. This is made when they were really desperate. <laughs> I probably wouldn't make first round interviews. Uh, but no, I mean that's what it was, right? It's just a passion. You know, it's it's a cool, you know, learning the stuff, teaching people, right? You know, people always ask, hey, how do you know how to do all that stuff? Well, it goes back to my dad, right? And, and having the right products. Um, and just working with your hands and building stuff, right? And that's what, you know, Milwaukee Tool is all about, right? We provide the solutions to make you more efficient and, you know, providing innovation. Uh, so it makes my job easier at home, too, because um, Christmas time, uh, the wife gives me a tool. I don't have, she doesn't find anything. So <laughs> music or tools, apparently. That's, a, that's what she gets you, is tools? No, I uh, okay. just, uh, <laughs> she hates it because, like, that's my passion. So she's like, I can't get you anything. I, oh, I, I got Sorry, you. I misspoke, <laughs> yes. She's like, what you like to do is you work for them. So, yeah, that's why I love my job. And it's just an incredible experience, good people, and just, uh, it's, it's a fun, fun career. Anyway, thanks for taking the time today. I uh, really appreciated the conversation. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Thanks, man. Right. Appreciate it. On the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach with you. Now, like a lot of you, I had my first experience as a worker in the world of retail, in the world of fast food. The wonderful Maya Food Hall in Melbourne, which is not there anymore, which is a shame. Lots of us do have our first job experience working in retail and or fast food or a combination of both. But imagine working at a place where you work for long hours and you're supposed to, under the agreement you have with said employer, like McDonald's, have a 10-minute break every bunch of hours so that you could, I know, outrageous, but you might want to go for a drink or, heaven forbid, you might want to use the toilet. Well, it's simple enough. It's written into the agreement. But what we've discovered or what the SDA has discovered is that McDonald's has, over a long period of time through its franchises, been denying workers in their stores, 323 operators, their 10-minute breaks, their paid breaks, which they're entitled to, often telling workers that the best they could do was swap their break for a sip of a drink only when they were allowed. Now, this is really important because there's a big, big court case, one of the biggest of its kind, heading towards the federal court at the moment with the SDA taking on McDonald's and saying, hey, you need to pay that money back and, hey, you need to stop this. You need to give people their entitlement, let them take their break and do the right thing. To start things off, to give you a sense of what that was like, you're going to meet Grace Becker. Now, Grace lives in Taralgon in regional Victoria, and her first job, like a lot of us, her first job was in the retail food sector with Maccas. And I spoke with Grace a little while ago and asked her what was that like because she was one of those people that McDonald's exploited because she was young and uh, they could get her to work and they didn't give her the breaks that she needed. Grace, welcome to On The Job. How are you going? Good, thank you. Tell us, where were you working? How long were you working in, in the fast food world? So I worked at McDonald's in Taralgon from 2014 to 2019. In about 2015, halfway through the year, they opened up a second store in Taralgon and I um, went to that store. So I worked at two stores in Taralgon in about five years' time that I've been working there. And in that time, did you notice or were you aware that you're entitled to breaks? So how did it work out that you finally realised that things weren't the way they were meant to be? So um, when I was first hired, I was told by my crew trainer during my training that we were entitled to a paid 10-minute rest break. 
but the store had an arrangement where instead of a paid break, we would get a small soft drink or water, which we would be required to leave in the crew room and access when we get a chance. After, of course, confirming with the managers that we were allowed to step out and have a drink. So instead of the 10-minute paid break, we were just allowed a small drink. And you're a young worker. You're not really, I guess, in a position, unless you're really bold, to go, hang on a sec, I know my rights. I want my 10-minute break. So you sort of do what you're told. Yeah, exactly. You do what you're told. Towards the end, I did start asking a few of the managers, like, come on, you know, it does state that we are allowed to have it. And they just said, well, that's not how we do it at our store. So too bad essentially. And, you know, that's not really okay because we are entitled to it. You know, you can't really deny us a drink. (laughs) You shouldn't have to have this argument. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Jared Dwyer is the National Secretary of the Shop Distributive and Allied Employees Association, otherwise known as the SDA, one of the country's biggest unions looking after retail workers in all sorts of retail, a lot of fast food workers as well. And they have taken on McDonald's in this mega court case. Jared, welcome to On The Job. Good to be here. So a big organisation, McDonald's, at least a big brand, has a bunch of franchises which might have individual owners or operators actually running them. Is there a great variance in the way that they're run or is you seeing this pattern over the whole terrain of, say, a McDonald's where this particular case has been uh, you know, your major focus? Well, we're seeing a real pattern of the non-observance of rest breaks right across the brand. So... I don't think it would be any surprise to listeners to learn that McDonald's is a very process-driven company. People look at their systems as an example of how you do achieve consistency across a brand. Uh, Whether you buy a Big Mac in Perth, Melbourne or Brisbane, you will find no variance at all. And that's the same for all of their products and this is what we're discovering when it comes to unpaid breaks. We're quite confident and uh, what our evidence will show in the proceedings is that this is systematic uh, and we'll also allege that it's deliberate. So McDonald's workers across the country over a number of years have been under pressure not to take their breaks. Give us your sense of just how this worked and how it was able to go on for so long. It works usually in one of two ways. One uh, way is that people are told that they can have a soft drink, for example, in lieu of a paid break and keep helping themselves to a sip of a soft drink during their, their shift. We say that that's not a paid break. A paid break is your capacity to down tools, have a rest. You might go outside, you might go out the back, but it is rest time that you're entitled to, to recharge your batteries and be ready for the remainder of the shift. The other way that it works in some franchise and corporate operations is micro breaks. That means they give you a minute here, two minutes there. All little micro breaks that they say at the end of the shift adds up to 10 minutes. I should say there is a third category where you just don't get a break at all. And has it been a problem? Yes, this is a problem that the SDA has put on the table in the last round of negotiations, which didn't result in an enterprise agreement, but the negotiations before that did, and there were actually changes made to try and get better observance of breaks in the units. And over the years, we've actually dealt with multitudes of one-off situations where people had raised break issues with us. We'd go in get it addressed, and then, you know, you assume that the uh, the systems had been rectified and were now back in place. But we actually got to the point where we hadn't satisfied ourselves that any of our actions to date had actually seen a change in behaviour. So early last year, we actually started to file 
actions against McDonald's for not taking breaks. And then what's happened more recently, after some 18 months of really hard organising work, gathering of evidence, we filed what we're referring to as our mega claim. And that's the claim that picks up franchisees in every state, every territory, and including corporate stores. And we say, conservatively, there's around about $250 million that we'll be claiming in money that needs to go back to McDonald's workers, both current and former, who were not given the breaks that they were entitled to. Jared Dwyer, thank you so much for being on the job. Thank you. With Francis Leach, this is On The Job. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to all the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You can find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon and me. I produce the show and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our podcast at laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show.